Well, we'll be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. We'll pick up where we left off last week, Acts chapter 2, and we'll be in verse 14. So go ahead and find your place there. And the title of my sermon this morning is Peter's First Sermon. Peter's First Sermon. Someone said one time, if you want to embarrass a preacher, ask him about his first sermon. Is that true, Kenny? That's right. If you, want to, if you want to embarrass a preacher, ask him about his very first sermon. We're privileged to have Keith's dad, Kenny, here with us this morning. And uh, I know he's enjoying a chance to uh, just to sit and listen to God's word um, be preached. I pray uh, that it will be a blessing to you guys as well as a family. Glad to have you with us this morning. Um, I, won't, I won't go into my first sermon. We'll leave that for later. That will be another, another sermon. There's a seminary professor uh, who was instructing his class one day and he was um, recounting his very first sermon that he ever preached to his class. He was telling them all about his experience during the first message that he ever gave. And like most preachers, his first sermon was not uh, his finest moment in ministry. He said he was way out in the sticks in this little old country church. And there was about 20 or 30 people in there, you know, just a couple of rows of pews. And there was that one center door back there. And uh, when the singing finished, he stepped up and he made his way up to the pulpit and he laid his Bible open and uh, he prepared to, to stand and to speak. And as soon as he opened his Bible and prepared to address the congregation gathered that morning, the back door burst open. And when the back door burst open, you would expect more people to flood in, but it was not more people. It was a herd of goats. And this herd of goats came flooding in and they were clattering and clanging all over the place. And this preacher in his inexperience you know, did not try to stop and deal with the distractions. And he said, I kept on trying to just move through my sermon. I kept going, but they were jumping over the pews and they were making an awful racket. And he said, there was nothing I could do. He said, so I stepped down out of the pulpit and I rallied about 20 people together. And we grabbed a hold of those goats and we ran them out of the church. And there was a little problem though. In that little scuffle, one of the goats uh, butted the preacher right in the face. And bloodied his nose. And so his entire first sermon, he spent pulling a handkerchief out and not wiping sweat off his forehead, but wiping blood off of his face throughout his entire first message. Not exactly a good first day on the job. In Acts chapter 2, when we come to verses 14 through 41, we find the very first sermon that the Apostle Peter ever preached. And as we study this message recorded for us by Dr. Luke, uh, as we've talked about a few weeks back, We're going to learn what made Peter's sermon such a powerful tool in the hands of God. We're going to talk about what made it a biblical sermon. We're going to talk about what made it a powerful sermon and a spirit-filled sermon that God used to usher new people into the kingdom on the day of Pentecost. And so as we come to verse 14, let's read that together. I'll read 14 through 41, a little bit of a lengthy passage, but Paul told Timothy, don't give up on reading the word together, so we're going to take him up. On his word there, verse 14. Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain. If you have a highlighter or a pencil, circle or highlight that word right there if it's in your text, depending on your translation. Let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, quoting from Joel, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. 
I'll even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover my flesh will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Verse 29. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb was with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest, the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. When we began reading this text a few minutes ago, I had you circle the word explain. We're going to key in on that word throughout the message this morning. That Peter was explaining what was going on as he connected it to the words from the scripture in Acts chapter 2 back to Joel chapter 2 and Psalm 16. So it may sound overly simple to say this, but the very first thing we see is Peter is explaining what happened. He's explaining to them what is going on, what they are witnessing, and how it's connected to the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, let me explain and listen, pay attention to my words. Carrie told the kids that all of us, when we listen to the word preached, we have a job. What's our job? To listen, to pay attention, 
to understand so that we can apply the Word of God to our lives. Let me ask you a question. How many times have you sat under my teaching or sermons in the past and you have heard other messages be preached that did not clearly and simply explain the biblical text? I've been preaching before and realized that I finished a sermon. Heath, will you switch to this mic, please? Appreciate that. That I've been preaching a sermon before and I have gotten to the end of my sermon and realized, number one, I didn't read the text. And number two, I didn't clearly explain the text. I told some stories or I said some things maybe that were some memorable statements. But we can dance around the text all we want to. We can tell stories that make people sit up, listen, and pay attention. But if we don't clearly and simply explain the biblical text so that the church as a whole knows how to understand and apply it, then we cannot call that a biblical sermon. That's why I believe my preferred method of preaching is expository Preaching. You say, what is expository preaching? I've heard that, but I don't really understand what that means. Let me quote from an article from a website called gotquestions.org. Listen to this article. Heath, could you bring that down just a smidge? Expository preaching presents the meaning and the intent of a biblical text, providing commentary and examples to make the passage clear and understandable. The word exposition is related to the word expose. The expository preacher's goal is simply to expose the meaning of the Bible verse by verse. He says, in both topical and textual sermons, the Bible passage is used as support material for the topic. So in other words, the Bible passage is a diving board where a pastor or preacher jumps off into some topic they want to spend their time talking about. But in expository sermons, the Bible passage is the topic. And support materials are used to explain and clarify it. So an expositor cares little if his audience says, Oh, what a great sermon. Or what an entertaining speaker. The the article says what he truly wants them to say is, Now I know what that passage means. Or now I better understand who God is and what he requires of me. So when you track through Peter's sermon here at Pentecost, what you see is Peter doing this very thing, exposing, expositing these texts from the Old Testament in Joel chapter 2 and in Psalm 16. He clarifies a misconception for them. He explains. He says, nobody is drunk here. Why is nobody drunk? Peter explains, no good Jew would eat or drink before 9 a.m. on the Sabbath or a holy day. He says, what you're witnessing is what the prophet Joel talked about in the Old Testament. So do you see what Peter is doing right here as he is preaching? He's explaining. He's explaining how the Old Testament text is being partially fulfilled right here before their eyes at the day of Pentecost. You say, why do you say partially? Because if you read Joel's prophecy, it says the giving of the Spirit would take place, but it saves some things for later. What are those things? Signs. Wonders, a darkened sun, a bloody moon. Those things had not occurred as of yet. Those were signs that would take place on the day of the Lord. So he says right here in front of you, you're watching scripture from the Old Testament, from the law, the prophets, and the writings. You're seeing those things come to pass right before you. He explains the text. Now you need to understand all of these people were devout Jews. All of them had been growing up in the Jewish faith or they were converts to Judaism. They were serious about their faith. So they were at least somewhat familiar with the Hebrew Bible. 
So when he begins to quote from Joel 2 and later from Psalm 16, that rings a bell in their heads. And they begin to say, wait a minute, we've heard this before. What exactly does this mean? And he's explaining for them, clarifying the meaning of the Old Testament, how it's being fulfilled here in the New. In verse 22 through 35, he explains how these things happen. Look at verse 22. Peter shifts their focus from an Old Testament prophet, Joel, to a New Testament Messiah, Jesus. Do you see that? Look at verse 22. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles. He says of Jesus, his life and his ministry was attested to you by God with miracles and signs and wonders. You know what that word attested means? It means to show forth the quality of something in the Greek language. It means to put the quality forward so you can see it on display. When I think of the word attested and what it means here, I think of uh, the cake baking shows on uh, the Food Network. Anybody watch those? Where these, these people spend hours, I mean eight hours, baking these cakes and elaborately decorating them. And they have to move them from where they bake them over to this. That's the best part of the show, moving them. Because, sorry, but things fall apart. You know, things fall down. And you're like, oh, but, you know, that's why you watch the show, right? I mean, why do you watch NASCAR? Not so they can go around. You watch it for the crash, let's be honest. So you watch the cake baking shows because you like the elaborate, you know, you like the decorations. But when Snoopy falls off the top, it's like, oh, no, they just spent six hours decorating Snoopy. And what happens? They move the cake and they set it forward so that the judges can scrutinize every detail of Snoopy's nostrils, right? They're scrutinizing every detail of what's going on with this cake, everything from the look and the height and, and, and does it meet the time requirements, everything has been put forward to show uh, the quality of that cake. That's what Peter's saying about Jesus. That you all had a front row seat to see the glory of God on display in this man Jesus. He did miracles. He did wonders. He did signs. He was the real deal. You heard him preach. His life matched up with his teaching. But, he says, you used lawless men to have him murdered. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Verse 24, look at what he says. But God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because why? It was not possible for him to be held by death. I love the depth of the Greek language. When I'm studying throughout the week, sometimes I run across a word and I'm like, man, I've got to bring this into my sermon because everything kind of hinges around this word here in this text. The word pains there in verse 24. Pains or, or whatever your translation may say, underline that word, pains. You know what the word pains means? It's referring to birth pangs. Pangs of birth when a woman is giving birth to a child. It's a play on words pointing to how the tomb they laid Jesus in was something like a womb from where Jesus was born in resurrection glory. When I read that this past week, that that's what Peter was referring to, this, this born-again-ness of Jesus from resurrection glory. I thought, man, that is good. Over and over, Peter keeps going back to the resurrection, and talking about how the resurrection is the key to God's plan of salvation. Look at verse 25 through 28. 
Where does he go back to? He goes back to Psalm 16. He quotes from the prophecy of David. Where David says that God would never allow the Holy One to see decay. Look at verse 29. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both what? Dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. So he's saying, David spoke these words in Psalm 16, but David died. David did physically see decay. He's buried. We know where his tomb is. So we know he's not talking about himself. Who is David talking about in Psalm 16? Go back and read that this week after this message. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the resurrected Messiah that would come from his line of descendants that would sit on the throne of God for all eternity, high and lifted up, exalted to the right hand of the Father. So he makes application of Joel 2, or explanation of Joel 2, and then he applies the words from Psalm 16 for these devout Jews. I was reading this past week where someone once commented on how little we talk about the resurrection in church life. You ever thought about that? How little we talk about the resurrection of Christ throughout the year. It's like we have a little box in a storage room somewhere that we keep and we put it and everything that belongs to the resurrection goes in that box. But we leave it alone until April comes and then we get it out and we talk about the resurrection every single week. Have you ever thought about that before? But two times Peter here says that God raised Jesus from the dead, and he explains how this Old Testament text finds its fulfillment in the resurrected Christ. Everything, listen to me, everything about your faith, if you are a believer in Christ, hinges on the resurrection. Everything. We celebrate Christmas because of all the fun and the things that go along with it. But listen, Easter is the highlight of the year because Jesus could have easily been born, but he could have easily stayed in the tomb. If you sit here this morning and you are not a believer in Christ, do you know what you need to hear about every single message and every single day? You need to hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're trapped in bondage, do you know what you need to hear? You need to hear that Jesus came back from the grave because that's the power that overcame sin. If you're trapped in some kind of sin in your life, in your marriage, if you're going through some difficult, dark time, you're walking through a burden and you feel like it is burying you, you need to hear about the Jesus that could not be buried. Because the resurrection power is what the Christian life is all about. I want you to listen to this. I wrote this down this week to make sure I shared this exactly carefully how I'd written it. If Jesus stayed dead in the grave, there would be no post-death appearances to his followers. They would have stayed cowards. There would be no courage and boldness given to his followers to open their mouths and speak in front of authorities that wanted to take their lives. They attested to that fact. Why would someone give witness to a resurrected Christ knowing it was going to get them killed? Because it was the truth of the matter. If, if, there was no, if Jesus stayed dead in the grave, there would be no ascension. There would be no exaltation. Listen, there would be no Holy Spirit poured out on God's people. You know what that would mean? That Joel 2 and Psalm 16 are false prophecies. And we know what Elijah did to the false prophets. He had them slaughtered. And all of it ended right there that day. If they're false prophecies, the whole message of Christianity should have collapsed. But why are you here this morning? Why do you sit here today? 
Because Jesus did come back from the grave. Because we don't just stop at one of these windows. It goes all the way around to that back window back there. If you follow the timeline of scripture through these windows. If there is no resurrection, there is no point to your faith. We are still in our sins. All of it is futile, Paul tells us in Corinthians. Everything hinges and hangs on the resurrection. Here we sit today. God's people. Saved by Jesus' death, but not just stopping there. Raised to life by His resurrection. You are filled with, and listen to me, sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you, yes, you, if you are a Christian have been given a glorious, global task of making disciples of people of all nations so that people can come to know this resurrected Jesus as Savior and as Lord and walk with Him and love Him and serve Him and give their lives for Him. Somebody should say amen right there. I'm just saying. If Kenny's preaching this, I'm going to amen him right there. That's gospel truth. If there is no resurrection, there's nothing else for us to even gather here for. Every other religion in this world, you know what they? Gather around the teachings of a dead man. We do not. We open the living and active word that when you read it, it reads you because it has been authored by the Spirit. It is perfect in its original autographs and it is amazingly saved and preserved for us for our walk in this world. How can we walk through this world without opening the word of God that was given for us? It tells us everything we need to know. Not everything we want to know, but everything we need to know that God wanted us to know that he saved and preserved for us in this world. What changed Peter from being a denier to a proclaimer of truth? The resurrection. Without the resurrection, we need to turn out the lights Cut off the air condition because we're not coming back and close up the doors. We go home. Third, Peter explained why all of this happened. What's a a three-year-old's favorite question to her daddy? What? I didn't hear you. Why? Why, daddy? Why did this happen? Why are you wearing a green shirt today? Why did you do this? Why? Why, why, why? Peter explains why God orchestrated all of these events, listen, so that sinners can receive forgiveness. And can be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a sermon. Every Sunday I get to the end and there's some type of invitation. Sometimes it's an altar call. Sometimes it's I want you to go home and think about something. I want you to write down somebody's name. I want you to apply this throughout the week. I give an invitation of some sort. Not the same generic one every single week. I try to make it fit what the word of God is teaching us here. So we know how to apply his word. But Peter didn't even get to the invitation. Look at verse 37. What did they say to him in verse 37? When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And what did Peter say? Two things. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to repent and you need to be baptized. Let me touch on this word repent for just a second because there is a massive amount of confusion between remorse and between repentance. Remorse is when you cognitively, mentally know, I have done wrong. You might be willing to admit to it. You feel bad because you got caught. You feel bad because things didn't pan out the way you wanted them to. That is remorse. But it can stay right here. 
There's no action. It doesn't move out to here and to your feet to where you go do something. Repentance, the Word of God teaches, is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So we can be remorseful over something, but we have not truly repented if we have not come around and gone the other way with our actions. So as God's Word challenges our thinking, we respond, listen, by turning away. We have a change of mind. We're we're brought under the, the teaching of God's Word. We turn away and we come back to Him. And we right the wrong. There's a difference between remorse and between repentance. But second, Peter says, be baptized. Now, quickly, I want to touch on one thing here in verse 38 to clear up some confusion in our English translation Bibles that we have today. Our English Bibles translate verse 38 in such a way that it sounds like Peter is saying, you are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, when, it, when, when it's translated from Greek over into English, we lose some of the things that are trapped down in the, in, in the basement, so to speak, of these Greek words. But the Greek language, the word for, means on the basis of. It can be translated on the basis of, which I believe is what the New Testament teaches. So when you see John the Baptist calling people to repent, what did he baptize them for? Because they had repented. So you repent first, you come back to Christ, and then you're baptized as a symbol to show you have repented of your sin. The old you is dead and gone. You've been raised to new life. Now, go down to verse 41. Look at what happened. When Peter preached this one sermon, his very first sermon, no goats, no bloody handkerchief, no debacle, no nothing to go home and climb under the covers about, Peter preaches this one sermon sermon and what happens 3,000 people say yes to Jesus they accept the gospel message for themselves and listen the church goes from a tiny scattered group of fearful followers to a massive mega church movement in one sermon one message was Peter that just that incredible of a speaker? Did he hold everybody in his grip? I don't believe it was Peter at all. I believe it was the Holy Spirit had corralled a bunch of people on that day, at that time, to deliver his word, to deal with hardened, sinful hearts that were pursuing a religion instead of a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit did something, I think, that threw Peter a curveball. I think Peter's carried along by the Holy Spirit, you know, and maybe he's going to make some powerful appeal. He's going to pull some story out of Chuck Swindoll's, you know, book of illustrations, and he's going to really just make them cry. I'm being facetious. It's okay to laugh right there. But the Holy Spirit cuts him off. The Holy Spirit's not going to let him get to that story. Peter had all his notes laid out. No, he didn't have notes. He stood up extemporaneously and just... Preach filled by the Spirit. And when the Spirit was ready for him to stop, he stopped him. And who stopped him? These people out in the congregation, so to speak, the audience. Thousands of people that have watched the Spirit be given at Pentecost. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? Was Peter working the pulpit? Was he saying, we're going to sing seven stanzas of just as I am? You got three more stanzas, keep singing, y'all come. No, there was nothing like that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was working. The Holy Spirit was moving. 
The Holy Spirit was saving and changing hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, exactly what Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the rest talked about in the Old Testament. Charles Spurgeon said, Scripture's like a lion. He said, you don't need to defend it. All you need to do is turn it loose. You know what my goal is every time I stand in front of you, whether it's a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, my goal every single week is to turn the Word of God loose in such a way that you understand it simply and clearly and you're able to walk out these doors and apply it in your life and you say, I know what that text means. I understand what God is saying in that passage as much as I'm able and I'm going to diligently apply it to my life. That's what Peter did right here. So as we close this morning, I want to lift out just a few short principles that hopefully you can take with you. You can take notes and jot these down if you're taking notes. Number one, a biblical sermon seeks to explain the text. A biblical sermon seeks to explain text. Whatever else may happen in that half hour or that hour, whatever denomination you're a part of, if the biblical text is not explained in a simple, clear, listen to me, Listen, Christ-exalting way, it's not a biblical sermon. This means the preacher might not get all loud and wound up. And, and I heard someone said one time, well, he really kept it alive today, didn't he? That's not my goal. And I've been waiting, waiting for the right time to tell you, yes, I get wound up. Yes, I can be a high-strung character sometimes. I get excited when I preach the Word of God. I love to preach the Word of God. But that's not my goal. If I come in here in a different manner on a Sunday because the text maybe fits a different way of communicating it and I speak it quietly, conversationally, maybe even mournfully, would you walk out of here saying, "Ah, I I wasn't feeling it today. If you're wanting just a, a big high holy experience and that's why you're here, maybe God wants to speak softly and quietly to your heart. We can go to Elijah to see that. Second, a biblical sermon makes Jesus the hero of all of Scripture. Parents, grandparents, as you read and teach the Word of God in your homes, I'm going to safely assume that's happening. I'm going to safely assume parents and grandparents in this place are opening God's Word and as best and simply as you can, explain it to your children. You know what you need to do? You need to help them read the Bible as one story. As one story, one unified story about one main hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? Because everything in Scripture is either preparing for, predicting, or preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. Everything is about Him. So the Bible is not an isolated book of stories where we learn good examples. And this is what we ought to do, and this is what we ought to imitate. It's not about just good morals and virtues and things to follow. It's about one story of one hero who reconciled a lost world to a holy God. That's what the Bible is about. Help your kids see that Jesus is the hero of Scripture. Third, quickly, a biblical sermon seeks to apply the text. So what did Carrie say down here this morning to the kids? You know what your job is? To listen. And I want you to draw a picture of what Josh is saying about Peter preaching to these people. I want you to draw it out so you can live it out. Because the goal is not just learning. The goal is life transformation. We want to apply the text and give Jesus first place in our lives. Number four, a biblical sermon reminds us of the gospel and calls us to repent. Something in the text 
Something in the text, every time the word is preached, if you come with an open heart, with a fertile heart, ready for the seed of the word of God to land there and and, and take up root, it ought to lead you to repent in some way, whether it's a thinking pattern or an action or a relationship that needs to be cut off or a spending habit or an attitude. It all ought to lead us to respond in some way in repentance. Number five, this one's a little different. We need to be ready. We need to be ready when God sends the growth. 3,000. Do you hear me? This is not a fairy tale. Aesop didn't write this down. Listen, 3,000 people responded to Peter's sermon. Can you imagine a hospital that has 3,000 expecting mothers show up at the ER door? What are they going to do? They're going to panic and pull their hair out because, my goodness, we don't know how to service all of these mothers and take care of these children. Let me ask you a question. What if God, what if God doubled our church in attendance in one year? Can he do it? Are you praying for him to do it? Are you busy out in the community reaching people with the gospel and inviting them in here? Not so we grow this building, not so we grow these number of people, but so that lost people can be saved. You can evangelize to them. You can share the gospel to them and bring them in to get discipled and trained up and equipped to follow Christ. What if God took us from 200 to 400? Or 220 where we normally sit to 440? We would be having some discussions about seating in this place. I know many of you have sat in the same place for decades. And your parents maybe sat there. And that's fine and well. But what if you walked in and 220 new people were here and they were sitting in your spot? And what if God was saying to you, I want you to slide over and move from the place where you've been sitting for decades so that new person can sit there and hear the gospel of Christ? We would have to look at our nursery and how we're going to beef up our nursery because there's going to be more babies. We're going to have to look at where we're going to put all the kids on the front because we're already full down front. They're going to be sitting down the aisles. We might have kids in the balcony if we have 440 kids here. We'd have to look at starting new Sunday school classes. We'd have to look at maybe having shifts of Sunday school because we couldn't get everybody in the building at one time. Listen, would you want that problem? I hear my kids saying yes. Thank you, kids. Love you guys. Would that not be a great problem to have? Would it push us outside of our comfort zones? Would we have to do some things differently? Would we have to make some changes? What do you see in the book of Acts? God floods them with 3,000 brand new baby Christians. What are you going to do with them? You're going to feed them, right? You're going to wrap them in a blanket. You're going to keep them warm. You're going to rock them. You're going to teach them how to live. What does that mean? That's on us. Not just on me. Not just on deacons. Not just on Sunday school teachers. That is on us as a church to be prepared when God sends the growth. You might lose your parking space. might lose your seat. Somebody else might come in that's better fit to do the position that you're serving in at the church. Are you willing to take your hands off of it and step aside and say, you know what, if it's for the good and the glory of God, I want to see that other person doing this job because they can do it better. God promises in Isaiah 55, his word will not what? Return void. Everything he purposes to do when the word goes out, he accomplishes. So a biblical sermon always accomplishes the will of God in his people. Let me ask you a question. 
If I give you an orange piece of paper or a purple piece of paper or a blue piece of paper that these kids were given this morning during the kids' sermon, if I give you one of those and I send it with you, and I ask you to write down your heart and what you're thinking through and what you're working through, will we come back together as God's people with fertile hearts, ready to receive the word and apply it in our lives like we challenge these children to do? As adults, we have to set that example. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit that helps us to lay open the word, exposing the word, exposing our hearts, so that the two find themselves on a collision course that draws us deeper into your heart, helps us to emulate your son, not in our own strength, but by the power of his filling, sealing, and dwelling spirit. Fill us up for good works. Fill us up with the spirit of God to open our mouths and to speak. Father, I pray that we would take these words from Acts chapter 2 and we would apply them in our lives. There are so many different ways that you would have us to put your word to work, to put your word to work in our lives today and this week. Father, I pray that our hearts would be open, fertile, ready to receive, ready to take that little colored sheet of paper and draw out what you want us to do, who you want us to be, how we're going to apply the word as it's explained in our hearing. Father, I thank you for your word, for preserving it for us, for our walk in this world. Help us to apply it the way that you would have us to do. In Jesus' name. Would you stand? We're going to sing our closing song of invitation. If there's some decision that you need to make for the Lord today, don't delay. Come down front and make that decision today. I'll be here to pray with you if you'd like to come.